0: Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Let us hear God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel, unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep these things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as flames of fire, and his feet like fine unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now, some of you this morning might be thinking, where is Pastor going? Why is he going to discuss the revelation or the apocalypse? in Greek. Well, why would I want to do that? Well, I think this book is always relevant, but I know that many of us are disturbed to a degree, maybe to a great degree, regarding the things that we see transpiring in the world in which we live. There's much upheaval the justice system has been turned on its head. The educational system has been stolen uh, from the normal people in this world. Not many who profess Christ are continuing to uh, have their children educated in a system that is predominantly demonic at root. And we see shocking things Almost every day if we choose to get on social media or we choose to look at any of these uh, curated um, journalistic uh, things that come up on websites, um, particularly in the conservative realm, but even uh, wherever you're looking, disturbing, shocking things. And more and more we are uh, in a post-Christian world uh, seeing the battle between good and evil every day. Right, and media has exposed us to that to a greater degree uh, than our forefathers would have been exposed to uh, in their little village and in their congregation, but with media, it's intensified, and it leaves us somewhat confused. And I thought, what better book, actually? A challenging book, but a great book to find comfort and hope. And so uh, years ago, I began a series uh, in the book of Revelation uh, in March of 2012, finished the first section of the first 11 chapters of that book, um, and took a little recess for a little while, but I think it's time to come back to that book. Uh, and so this morning, I kind of want to treat this sermon as an orientation, It's kind of a review of chapters 1 through 11 and a preview of chapters 12 through 22. So an orientation to get us set back into the book and into the flow of the book, or or we'd be lost if I just jumped into chapter 12 uh, without setting the framework for the whole book. So let me do that. Let us seek to orient ourselves uh, to this wonderful book, Uh, of the Revelation or the Apocalypse. First, let's introduce the book and then let's survey the book. So first, an introduction. Who's the author? John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, uh, the brother of James, who was martyred early uh, in the book of Acts, right? He's one of the three unique apostles. Uh, He was one of the three that was with Jesus in the Transfiguration, uh, which you heard about fairly recently, He's also the apostle that in his gospel says was the one that Jesus uniquely loved. He's actually the one that was in Jesus' bosom uh, at the Last Supper, at the, um, the, the Lord's Supper. So, we see that in verse one, he's the author. It's unto a servant John. Verse 4, 1:4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Verse nine we read, and I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. But then also in chapter 21, verse 2, the author will say again, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. And then in 22.8 we see, and I, John, saw these things. There's not another book in the New Testament where the author identifies himself Five times in the book. And this is a unique book because it is a prophecy. It's talking about things that are occurring then and things that will occur. It's also an apocalyptic prophecy, right? It's in pictures. This is a picture book, not a puzzle book. You're going to see over and over. John's saying, and I saw, and I saw. And so he's trying to take what he's seen and put it in words. And he's doing it with Old Testament glasses on. He's recognizing that there were symbols in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And so he, when he's looking at heaven. He's seeing it in light of his own grid, the grid of his own thinking. And then he's writing it down for us, and this is apocalyptic, like the Book of Daniel. So many evangelicals today, because there are many allusions to the visions of Daniel in the Book of Revelation, have concluded that the Book of Reve- that Daniel is actually talking about the things that the Book of Revelation is talking, and in fact that would be a great error because the book of Daniel particular, primarily focuses on the time from Daniel to the coming uh, of the little stone, the little rock that breaks uh, that colossus of the great kingdoms of the world during that period, that 490 years uh, between that period of the exile and the return and then the eventual coming of Christ after what we call the intertestamental period between the closing of the Old Testament canon with Malachi and Jesus coming on the scene. So who are the recipients? I said it's a prophecy, it's an apocalyptic prophecy, but it's also an epistle. It's a letter to churches, to seven churches in Asia. There were more than seven churches in Asia at the time. Just mention one, Colossae. They're not mentioned to you. There are plenty more churches. Seven is obviously symbolic, right? And as you see, like in the book of Colossians, at the end of Colossians, Paul says, hey, make sure that you read the book from Laodicea. Make sure you read the letter that I sent to the church in Laodicea. These, they would have been passing these letters around. And so the other churches in Asia and eventually throughout the known world would have come across this epistle. He says it to, to the seven churches in Asia in verse 4 of chapter 1, verse 11, uh, and then in verse 20, just want to make a brief comment. Uh, here he talks about the angels of the seven churches. Uh, if you remember the Greek word uh, that we get angels from, angelos, uh, often means messengers. So this very well could be a reference to minister or the pastor of these churches, not as though there's some special angel uh, for each congregation, uh, just like we're not to believe that there's one special uh, guardian angel uh, that's watching over us uh, as individuals. So we see the author, the recipients, what's the occasion? We see that uh, in chapter 1, 9 and 10, I, John who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience. And that word patience could be translated perseverance. In other words, in tribulation, we're going to need extra doses of perseverance. I was on the aisle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why was he there? He was in exile because of his testimony for his Savior. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. No congregation to go to on Patmos. But John still knew it was the Lord's Day. And he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He was worshiping the Lord in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He must have asked the Lord for assistance as he worshiped the Lord on his special day, even though he didn't have the luxury of being in a congregation of God's people. Sometimes in God's providence, we find ourselves in that very situation. It doesn't mean that that this day isn't still special in that situation. It certainly is. It certainly was for John. He heard a great voice as a trumpet. That's when he hears the Lord speak to him. So he was in Patmos, an island about 37 miles southwest of Miletus, which is now Turkey. If you remember, Miletus was the place that Paul, uh, as he journeyed back to Jerusalem after the third missionary journey, chose to call uh, the presbytery, the elders of the churches around Ephesus, to come down to that port city uh, so he could speak to that presbytery. So that's where John finds himself. Now the question is, what year is this? And does it necessarily matter? Well, some have claimed Uh, this is likely before AD 70 because uh, many uh, would say that they believe this book is dealing with what is primarily passed to us that it is primarily speaking of what Jesus talks about in in, Matthew 24 and 25 of the day uh, or the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 that the focus is there Um, so Many hold that position. I kind of lean towards the 96, the 90s position, where uh, he would have been um, exiled during the reign of Domitian, and then Domitian would have been succeeded by Nerva in 96. And that's when the persecution generally stopped for a period. And then, um, historian, church historians, or at least the ancient church, seem to suggest that John returned to Ephesus at that point and would have been serving in some capacity somewhat similar to Timothy, Um, not necessarily the the pastor of one of the congregations uh, in Ephesus, much less the bishop of all the churches in the region, but would have been serving as an apostle seeking to guide, mentor, help all of God's people throughout that region. So what's the purpose of the letter? I think the purpose is to comfort the church in its struggle against the forces of evil. It's to remind the church that one of the metaphors of the church is that we are a militant church. We will one day be a triumphant church, and that triumph is guaranteed. But right now, we are a militant church. There is a battle being Waged. And so what's the theme of this book? The theme is, first off, first and foremost, Jesus Christ. The revelation, the book begins, the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalypse in the Greek is a compound word, apo and calypse. Apo, meaning un, calypse being a veil. Right now, for us, apart from the Word of God, there's a veil between the seen world and the unseen world. I don't think any of you have looked up in the sky recently and seen the the veil of the sky open up and you'd be able to look into heaven. We can do that by faith through... Right? The apocalyptic literature of the New Testament. But John actually had a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorious state. He had met Jesus in the flesh. He had seen him in his resurrected state for 40 days before his ascension, but it had been a while since John had seen Jesus. And now he sees him again. But this book is also about Jesus and, verse 1, what it says, and things which must shortly come to pass. It's about Jesus' activity then. And in 4.1 it says it's about things which must take place after this. It's about Jesus' work then and later. So it's about God's working in history. Children, if you don't know this, please remember this. History is his story. History is his story. It's God's story. He planned it all, and he's perfectly executing his plan. It can't fail. Perfectly executing just broadly, in broad brushes, what is this philosophy of history that we as Christians ought to have? First, it's about two kingdoms, two kingdoms that are antithetical to one another, and so there's a conflict between those two kingdoms. This is setting the broader context of where we're heading in the Christian education class on Christian living. Because in the midst of our journey to the celestial city, there is warfare with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this book clearly brings that out, particularly the world and the devil and how the world's temptations are tied to the devil. The devil's behind the world's solicitations to sin. Sometimes they come directly as fiery darts towards us, and we need to have the shield of faith, which includes knowledge of the Word. Right, Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we're not tempted above what we're able, but God always gives us a way of escape. There's always a way to pivot out of that bad that we're heading into, that evil we're heading into. But he gives us that direction in the word. Right? As we lay the word up in our hearts, then we're able to practice it and know it's time to make a sharp right turn right now. So it's about conflict. But it's about the ultimate victory of Christ and those that are united to him, the church. It's about the seen and the unseen world. And it's about the relationship between the two. Now in Africa, you won't find find many people that believe that there's not an unseen world. You won't find many in Africa that, that deny that there's an interaction and interplay between the seen and the unseen world. Now they'll be very confused, many of them about what's in the unseen world, but they understand that. But in our secular society, we will run across people almost daily that deny there's any in the unseen world, that there is an unseen world. Many think this is all there is. And Paul could even quote a pagan, well, if if that's all there is, then let's eat, drink, and be merry until we die because there's nothing else to worry about. Rather than us remembering that the whole duty of man, mankind, is to fear God and keep his commandments because the Lord will account for every deed that we do, whether it's good or evil. Right, which is at the heart of the fear of God, if any of you started reading that article from Professor Murray. So it's about the unseen world and the seen world. It's about good and evil or the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man or the city of man, uh, as Augustine called it, the city of God versus the city of man. And that book, The City of God, right, was really in many ways the first Christian perspective of history. It's literally like the first history book. It's kind of interesting. The Confessions of St. Augustine. Excuse me, I should have just said Augustine. He's a saint. He was a saint, but so were all we. So were we. So No special saint. Augustine wrote the Confessions. That was really like the first autobiography in history. Writing about yourself and your own life. It's created a whole new genre of literature, a whole new type of literature. Gustin was amazing. but wrote this book, right, to help explain God's in charge of the downfall of Rome. It's not the church's fault. It's the paganism that still remained in Rome that was the root cause of the demise of the Roman Empire. So at heart, I think, Revelation 17, 14 gives us kind of a good summary of the theme. Then these shall make war with the lamb, speaking of his enemies, and the lamb shall overcome them. So here's a warrior lamb. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful it's christ's victory but we're victorious because of our union with him we're with him and we're victorious because of his victory and we are those that have been called because we've been chosen and because we've been chosen and called we persevere we're faithful are we sinlessly Faithful. Sinlessly faithful? No. But principially faithful? All true believers are principially faithful. John was faithful when he calls us to faithfulness. Now, as we work through this book, or as we work through the first chapters years ago, one thing that's pretty interesting is the three prayers of the saints in Revelation 5.8. 610, and then in an 8, 3 through 5. What we see there is the saints offering prayers to God in heaven, and then you see God answering in judgment upon the earth, or the return of prayers. God, answers, God stirs us up to pray. We pray, He answers, and then what are we supposed to do? Thank Him. And sometimes these judgments, when we're calling and pleading with judgments and praying imprecatorially, well, then we still need to thank God when he answers those imprecatory prayers. We'll also see in this book seven benedictions. We've seen one already in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So, this blessing went to the reader of the first seven ministers that would have been reading this epistle, this prophetic, apocalyptic literature in those seven churches. They would have been blessed, and the people that heard it would have been blessed, and every person that's ever read it in the congregations and people present have been blessed. That's what God promises. Those that hear it and keep those things which are written therein. Not a whole lot of commandments in the book of Revelation. There are some, like worship God, but there are not many. I think what we're to understand is we're to keep the commandments that are here. We're also to understand that there are many good and necessary inferences from this book that we are to apply in our lifestyles, in our living, in the way we think, uh, the way we act, the way we speak. So briefly, the various views of Revelation. I don't want to give a lot of details on this because I want us to let the book speak for itself. What I don't want to do is put a grid on it and say, this is the way I understand it, and so I'm not going to change while I'm working through chapters 12 through 22. I didn't do that through the first 11. I don't want to do that at present. But broadly, I would say, there are those that are called preterist. Preter means past. That means many people, some people, see that most of what's in Revelation's already happened. So it doesn't have so much to say to us today. Then there are futurists that say most of what is in Revelation is about the future. So it didn't have much to say to the people when it was written other than think about the future, think about what's going to come. There's some benefit to that, right? Or there are what are called historicists, which believe that the book is equally relevant, always has been relevant to the apostolic church to the church right before the Lord returns, as well as the church through all the ages. I agree with W.J. Greer in his book, The Momentous Event. He says there, Revelation presents the great drama of the conflict between Christ and his people on the one hand and Satan and his followers on the other. It covers the unfolding of the entire history of Christ's kingdom from the beginning of the Christian era to the grand climax of the second advent. In other words, it's a battle between Christ and the church, Christ and the church against Satan and his minions. And it's from the ascension to the return of Christ. That's the historic view, and clearly that's you will recognize that's kind of the view I'm significantly taking here. In other words, it applies to us. There's much comfort here for us. So what's an outline of the book? I'm going to argue that there are seven parallel sections that cover the period from the first coming to the second coming, seven different times, looking at this era from a different perspective each time. So some have called this progressive parallelism. There are some historicists that want to think you can just read through Revelation from chapter 1 to 22 and think, oh, we're somewhere here. We're in chapter 11, verse 3. We're about ready to go into verse 4. Or we're in 21, you know, we're just... But that's really few and far between. Some of our Puritan forefathers and reformers, I think, um, I would like to say, I think it's likely that they were influenced by the time they lived in. Guess what, we're influenced by the time we live in interpreting the scriptures as well. But many of them thought they were, was close, right? Because of the Reformation. I believe we understand now that there's a greater Reformation yet to come before Christ's return. Many of us would say Romans 9 through 11 have not been fulfilled yet. So, in chapters 1 through 11, we have the conflict between the church and the world, mainly in the scene world. You have the description of the seven churches, then the seven seals of persecution, and then the seven trumpets of judgment in those first 11 chapters. Then, And the section we'll begin, the next time I'm here, Lord willing, we'll consider the conflict or the warfare between Christ and the devil in chapters 12 through 22. Now, have you noticed that the first three sections are sevens? Seven sections and the first three have seven. Seven churches, seven persecutions or seals, seven trumpets. Now, in the second section, we're going to see seven bowls. Uh, One other of these seven portions that is divided into seven. The other three sections do not appear to be divided into seven. Some have tried desperately to separate them into seven, to come up with seven sevens and have 49, and maybe it's there. But we have to be very cautious to try to make something that we don't see. You can't force fit it in. Um, but there are clearly seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16. But before that, we will begin to look at Christ and the dragon, or Satan himself, in chapters 12 through 14. And then we'll consider the seven bowls. Then we'll consider the two beasts and Babylon being defeated in 17 through 19. And then we'll see in 20 through 22, the dragon, Satan himself, being defeated. And then the the vision of Jerusalem, the golden the new heavens and the new earth descending at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in ultimate victory. The victory has been won at the cross. The mop-up operations go on. Some of you are old enough to remember um, the intrusions uh, into Grenada. Um, right? we, we're told on the news, we've gone in and today we've captured the citadel. The American flag's up. Victory's won, but there's still some guerrillas in the woods. We still have some people that have to go out there and get rid of all those rebels. The leaders, the leader, he's been taken. The rebellion's over, so to speak, but there's still a little bit of work to go on. That's the way it is in this New Testament era. It's also the way it is in our lives, isn't it? Sin that once reigned no longer reigns, but sin still remains. There's still work to be done. We're 100% justified. We're 100% adopted, but we're not 100% sanctified yet. And so I think this book will be a book of comfort uh, and encouragement to us. In closing an application, I don't often quote from somebody uh, at this length, but uh, Pastor Al Martin did a short series on the abiding message of the book of Revelation years ago. He had seven key points, and I think his abiding message could have been called the ever-relevant message of Revelation. What are some of the very key things that we need to know about the book? First, Jesus Christ is in the midst of his church in all situations until the consummation of all things at his coming. He's present with his church in all situations. He was present with his church in the Babylonian captivity. He was present with his church in the sec- what Luther called the second Babylonian captivity of the Middle Ages, and especially the latter period of the Middle Ages, Secondly, all that transpires in human history is under the sovereign government of God and the Lamb. The suffering servant is the victorious Messiah. Thirdly, all that transpires in human history finds its true significance in relationship to the ultimate triumph of Christ and his church. Fourthly, Jesus Christ shall conquer all his and his people's enemies and shall bring in the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Fifthly, all the martyred and dead saints, could just say all the dead saints, but there is certainly an emphasis on the martyred in the book. All saints are in a better state now than they were on earth. Sixthly, the saints must overcome in order to inherit the promises. Now, do we overcome in our own strength? Of course not. But Paul says we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who is saved. He is our great captain, the captain of our salvation. And in his strength, we do battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And last, the saints must overcome, but all true saints of God shall overcome in Christ, the victor, the suffering servant, the lamb who is the victorious Messiah. May we delight in him as we see him unveiled uh, in coming weeks uh, and probably over a year or two um, here in this congregation. May we find much comfort and encouragement and hope as we see him at work uh, riding that white stallion uh, with a sword uh, coming out of his mouth, the word of God, uh, and conquering and, and continuing to conquer through the ages. Let's rise for prayer.